Now we refer to the people, to their demands that those responsible be held to account for this catastrophe that has been underway for seven years. To their desire for real change, from a government of corruption and malice, of brokers and theft, into a country with rule of law, justice and transparency, to a country that respects its people. That was Lebanon's Prime Minister Hassan Diab addressing the nation on Monday evening as he tendered his resignation. The move collapses government and raises the question of what comes next for a country beset by economic crises and devastated by an explosion that has wrought untold damage to a nation already on the brink. You are listening to the Business Extra podcast coming from the Nationals Newsroom in Abu Dhabi. I'm Kelsey Warner, future editor. Today, we are talking about Lebanon's economic future, which before the explosion on August 4th was teetering on the edge of disaster. And then, an actual disaster. Nassib Gabriel, head of economic research at Lebanon's Biblos Bank, joins us on the line in Beirut. Nassib, thank you very much for joining us today, and especially during this time. I want to get into Lebanon's economy, but first, I'm hoping you can give us a sense of just how much has changed in Beirut in the last week. Like, are you able to conduct business? Are people able to access the basics, like an ATM, at this point? First of all, whatever you see on TV or in the media cannot describe the devastation uh, on the streets of Beirut in the areas that were hit directly or indirectly by the blast. Uh, I had a, a tour of the of the of the areas of all the areas uh, less than 48 hours after the blast. So some of the damages were started to be removed from the uh, streets themselves, but not from the building. And the scene is apocalyptic. Uh, it's beyond description. Uh, the, descri- the, the destruction, the damages are are beyond description. And again, whatever you see on TV doesn't show you the real extent uh, of the damages and the destruction. The, the areas that were damaged are widespread uh, and uh, they affected large parts of Beirut, uh, including the areas of Jemaize and Maram Khayil, which are uh, areas that are vibrant at night and during the day. They're full of pubs, restaurants, uh, and they, they overflow with, uh, with youth specifically with Lebanese youth and a a lot of uh, foreigners residing in Lebanon and foreigners who come to visit Lebanon and specifically to go to these quarters. During the days, it's full of art galleries uh, and small stores. So the the, the blast hit uh, a major part of the beating heart of Beirut in terms of arts, in terms of nightlife, in terms of culture, and not just in terms of business. Regarding your questions about the banks, yes, banks were severely affected as well, and not just in their branches, uh, but in their main head offices as well, because almost every bank in Lebanon has its head offices in Beirut, somewhere in Beirut, and some banks were uh, more severely damaged than others, but many of the branches of the banks were hit, and uh, some of them are still not functioning uh, as of today, one week after the blast. However, Given the dynamism of the of the Lebanese people and the banking sector in particular, this is the situation today. The banks are up and functioning uh, as best as they can from remote locations, from their homes, until the damaged buildings are uh, functional again. 
but the priority has been given to bank branches so they can serve their customers. And customers have been informed that the, the branches that are not open yet, uh, uh, you know, they can service them from other locations. Also joining us on the line in Dubai is veteran journalist Masood Derhali, the National's business editor. Masood, thank you for being here. You've covered Lebanon over the last two decades, and the country is often celebrated for its resilience, its dynamism, as Nasib just said, but that often washes over deep systemic hurt, as we're seeing right now really acutely. Where does this week fit into the country's recent past? Is this a catalytic moment? Well, thanks for having me. Um, I, I think, if anything, this week highlights how much has changed and how much has not changed in the country since the end of its civil war. The detritus of the, of the civil war left the country with warlords who run the country, who've, who've been basically also the Achilles heel um, that has um, held the country back from moving forward. It's a continuation of, of a problem that uh, emanates back to 1990 when the war ended. Um, you know, and, and it, it, without get, getting too much into politics, you know, unlike South Africa, which had a truth and reconciliation uh, commission where, where people were able to move on, turn the page and elect a leadership that had the, uh, the interests of the, of the nation, of the people, of the economy at heart, um, very much what Lebanon ended up with were people with vested interests who only cared about advancing their interests. So, you know, privatization was held back. Um, you know, you have a very inefficient um, mobile telephone system in the country. You have an electricity company that um, continues to sap the government's coffers of $2 billion at least every year. Um, you have power outages that exist in Lebanon that don't exist in some African countries or even some countries in Latin America or the Indian subcontinent. So very much what you saw in this week is a lot of pent-up frustration and anger at an inept and negligent government. And that government seemed to acknowledge the level of corruption. The prime minister in his resignation address last night said that the corruption is even greater than the government itself. And prior to the political system collapsing this week, leaving behind a caretaker government, the IMF bailout of $10 billion had stalled. So prior to this explosion, Lebanon was installed negotiations for this bailout package. And then since the disaster, the fund has set out a roadmap for Lebanon to begin a kind of reconstruction. But that's even more uncertain under a collapsed government. So Nasib, can you Walk us through a bit what the IMF has laid out and weigh in on if you think it's reasonable and where it sits now that the government has collapsed. Okay, uh, first, let me give you a, a brief background. Uh, when this government that just resigned took over, it's, uh, the, the economic situation um, was, uh, was, was bad. Anyway, we, we had already uh, an economic contraction uh, in 2019. Uh, we had a liquidity crisis uh, in the foreign currency market. Uh, and we had the financial crisis with the uh, widening of the fiscal deficit. And uh, we're in the process of seeing a run on banks. When this government took over, 
it, uh, uh, it decided to compromise the credibility of the Lebanese state that it has built over decades in uh, meeting its foreign obligations by declaring on March 7 that it will suspend its payments, its obligations on uh, Lebanon's eurobonds, and not just on the eurobonds that mature in 2020, but on all uh, outstanding eurobonds. It did this in a, in a, in a very in a disorganized way because you know government governments around the world did this before, but. 87% of governments who suspended payments on eurobonds and essentially declared defaults on their eurobonds did this in conjunctions with ongoing negotiations uh, with the IMF on a funded reform program first. And second, they did it after communicating with bondholders, whether local or foreign, about this decision months in advance. This government did not do either. It, it declared all of a sudden on March 7, uh, it's defaulting on uh, its obliga foreign obligations, and it did not communicate with its bondholders. Actually, up until its resignation, it did not start negotiations with bondholders. So uh, we start on the wrong foot, and then in May, uh, negotiations start with the IMF based on, a, on the request by Lebanese authorities and on a financial rescue package that the uh, government and its advisors prepared. The problem with this approach of the, of, by the government is not approaching the IMF. It's never too late to approach the IMF. Is that its program, its financial plan, was not designed uh, to help the economy expand, uh, that put the interest of the Lebanese economy as its top priority. It designed this plan to please the IMF, even though the IMF came without any preconditions. It, it decided, for example, that the debt-to-GDP ratio has to decline to 100% in less than one year. And as a result, it, uh, it put the entire cost of the crisis on commercial banks, on the central bank, and therefore on depositors. And what, what would have essentially done, it would have wiped out the equity of the, of the commercial banks and therefore their existence. Uh, and it would, have, uh, uh, it would have crippled the economy for, for many years. When the negotiations started with the IMF, uh, the IMF had seven priorities to look at, uh, while the Lebanese sides uh, were focusing on the financial losses. And there were differences in the approaches between the, the government's de uh, delegation, the government's representatives, and the representatives of the central bank. The central bank had a very different approach to the, to the losses, and therefore they had two different figures. And that's what caused the delays in advancing uh, the, the talks with the IMF. On the other hand, the IMF continued to discuss other issues that are priority for, uh, for the delegation and for the fund, such as uh, enacting a capital controls law, which the banking sector has been calling for since November, altering, modifying the budget for 2020 to include a medium-term fiscal framework, auditing Electricité du Liban. The entire focus has been on a forensic audit of Banque du Liban, the central bank. But the, the, one of the priorities of the IMF is to have a forensic audit of Electricité du Liban, because, as Masoud said, it has been draining the, the, the treasury every year of about one and a half to two billion dollars and is a major cause of the fiscal deficit and, and, and therefore of the public finance imbalances that led to the current crisis. 
So uh, the, the, the talks with the IMF, I won't call them negotiations, the talks, uh, because the 18 sessions that the Lebanese authorities held with the IMF have been over, uh, the, uh, have focused on the IMF asking questions and details and getting familiar with the government's plan, uh, while also discussing the other issues that the IMF finds important. The negotiations themselves on a timetable for implementing reforms on the priorities of which reforms have to come first, on quantitative targets for these reforms have not even started yet. So this will be the uh, responsibility of the new government uh, going forward. And what do you hope for the new government in terms of restoring trust in the financial system? Well, uh, before restoring trust in the financial system, uh, let's remember that the financial system is part of the Lebanese economy, and specifically the commercial banking sector has felt the crisis uh, since late 2017 uh, with government decisions that led to the liquidity crisis in 2018. And if you want to talk about confidence, let's look at the results of the Biblos Bank Consumer Confidence Index for uh, the second quarter of 2020 which is obviously before uh, the, the, the tragedy that happened a week ago, um, 91% of the Lebanese survey in June considered that their personal financial conditions deteriorated from six months earlier. 90% of Lebanese surveyed in June considered that economic conditions have deteriorated overall from six months earlier. So for the second quarter of 2020, the, the index, the Consumer Confidence Index, reached its lowest level ever on record. In March 2020, it reached its lowest level in seven years, since lowest level since 2013. In April, it declined to its lowest level on record, and in May, it dropped to its even worse lowest level. So you have in the second quarter of 2020, the Biblos Bank Consumer Confidence Index reaching its lowest level on record, and that's before before the explosion uh, of last week. So th there is a lack of confidence in, in, in the state's institutions, in the government, in the political class, and as a result in the financial sector in the country. Uh, to restore confidence in the financial sector, you need to restore confidence in the system overall, in the public institutions, in the functioning of the state uh, and of, of, of state institutions. And that has been severely, severely broken uh, a week ago. Uh, th this lack of confidence turned into anger. I, I cannot say the confidence has declined because it was already at a record low level. It has turned into anger uh, of the people. So, so you need to start this process gradually. Uh, the financial sector can play a role, but it cannot play a role outside of a comprehensive reform package with the international monetary funds, because this is what will reform on track that will bring credibility to the reform, to the implementation of reforms. People are focusing on the liquidity that the IMF would inject in case of an agreement. But what for me is more important is that an agreement with the IMF would bring credibility to the reform program and discipline to its implementation. We have seen since 2001 successive governments pledging reforms to the international community and more importantly to Lebanese citizens. And all they've implemented since then is increasing taxes and fees on households, on Lebanese citizens and on the private sector. 
So there is a credibility problem, and it has been very uh, transparent uh, in the visit by of president, French President Emmanuel Macron to Lebanon on Thursday, and in the international conference that was held on Sunday to uh, provide humanitarian support to Lebanon. Masoud, as you think about the response to this crisis, you've spoken to two former prime ministers of Lebanon in the last week. You've dug into forecasts from the IIF. Um, we've seen the response from the people of Beirut and the international community. What do you expect through the end of this year in terms of economic growth or lack thereof for Lebanon? Well, I'm, I'm not an economist like, like Nassib, but I can tell you one thing. Lebanon right now is basically not on the brink. It's, it, if there is anything beyond the brink, it's, it's probably there right now. You know, it's, it's got a caretaker government, which has no mandate which is going to be unable to advance the talks with the IMF, which is going to be unable to push any meaningful reforms. So the immediate task at hand in order to turn the page is to, A, acknowledge the fact that the old system of, and way of doing things can no longer continue. They need to identify you know, what the issues are, and then they need to form a team of technocrats. It doesn't matter if there's another prime minister who was there from before, as long as they identify those issues and then they find the technocrats, the, the, the people who can actually um, go in and implement and carry, carry out the necessary changes, then I think you know things can move forward. Then once you have that team in place, once you know that you're going, once you have the political will, and the people to advance um, the necessary changes, then you can move forward with the IMF in terms of accessing the 10 billion or whatever money that the IMF will give Lebanon. Then you can also access funds that have been promised to Lebanon two years ago in Paris by donors, which are about $11 billion. Um, Because all of these funds are also contingent on these reforms. I think it's it's premature to say, you know, that the economy is going to grow X amount by the end of the year. Um, right now, the immediate the immediate situation necessitates that um, you know they put the right people in place. That's the most important thing for the country, in my view. Nassib Gabriel of Biblos Bank and Masoud Darhali of the National. Thank you both for being with me today. Thank you. Thank you. That's it for today. If you like the show, please do subscribe or leave a review. All that remains is to thank Arthur Edison and Aisha Khan for producing this episode. And thank you for listening.